All right, good morning, church. Had to come in from the back this morning. Kyler's gone, and man, I miss that guy when he's not here. I tell you what, I'm so thankful for all of you. Uh, We had such a great Bible class this morning. If you weren't here, we covered eight verses, and we had a ton of great discussion. So I'm really, really thankful for that, and just the whole body here. I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate Kyler, because he does a lot back there um, before I even come up here, so... Good morning. Um, I'm going to try something a little different today, and I'm going to tell you what it's based on. Um, But since January, starting back in January, I've been taking some master's classes online through Sunset, who I went to uh, my bachelor's degree with. I've been taking some master's classes online, and some of them have been boring, and some of them have been great. But one I took this past semester, I just finished my final paper here yesterday, and I have one more test, and I'm done. Um, That class that I've been taking has been spiritual warfare, and it's been a very interesting class, to say the least. That'd be an understatement to say that it's interesting. Um, But it's so fascinating because this whole class, the the premise of it all is to think about things we hardly ever think about. It's to think about um, the forces that are at work in us for good and evil, angels and demons, and what's working all around us that we can't see, that spiritual battle that's happening over our souls. And so it's been, it's been really interesting, it's been a great class, and it's really put into perspective everything in our lives that we think is important is really just a playing piece for those two teams to win a soul, right? And so it's really put things into perspective, and I've loved it. Um, all of those forces working around us, it's kind of spooky and inspiring at the same time. <laughs> but one of the very first books that I had to read for this class back in January, February, I read it, um, was one that I've had on my shelf for years, probably since high school, and I've never actually read it. It's C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. Never read that book. I know I got it at least before graduation in high school, and it's just been sitting there. And so I'm glad that this kind of forced me to finally read that book, because it's an amazing book. And if you don't know anything about it, I'll give you a little background here. It's one of his classics, and it was written in the early 40s, probably 1941. And it's, it's a book about spiritual warfare. If you were to sum it up in one thing, it's about spiritual warfare. And I liked it so much that I don't know how many I'm going to do, but I want to do a little series and call it the Screwtape Sermons. And I'll explain a little bit more about the book when we get going here in a second. But I enjoyed it so much that I kind of wanted to take this time. So we'll see how long it goes, how many uh, seasons this will have, but... It's going to be the screw tape sermons, all right? And it's a really interesting book about spiritual warfare. So let me give you a little introduction. Because if I just started reading this book or any excerpt from it, you would probably be very alarmed and very scared about what I was going to talk about. Because the screw tape letters, they were originally published, instead of as a book, they were published as letters to the editor of the newspaper. And so uh, C.S. Lewis would write in every week one of these letters, and it would go in the religious column back in 1941, right? And the reason when he did that, the religious leaders of the Church of England uh, started to get a little terrified because they didn't realize that these letters were fictional. They thought this was a, a real person writing to the newspaper, talking about this spiritual warfare and talking about the church in this way. And here's why that is terrifying, and why the church leaders almost had C.S. Lewis done for, 
These letters are from a senior demon to an apprentice demon, all with the goal of getting their patient to hell. So the senior demon is Uncle Screwtape, and the apprentice demon is Nephew Wormwood, and they are all working on this one patient. He remains unnamed, kind of Fight Club vibe there, right? We never know who he is. He's just the patient that they're trying to bring to hell. So can you imagine reading that in a newspaper and not knowing that this was a fictional story? You just read a a letter from a demon, basically, about people. So that would be quite alarming. But thankfully, they, they figured out that it was fiction. He published these letters, and then they later became a book, The Screwtape Letters. So they are, in fact, letters themselves. So this dialogue that I'm going to read today is backwards. That's how you and I would think about it. Because we think of spiritual things in God's terms. Everything in this book is spiritual things in Satan's terms. And it's really, really alarming. It's so backwards because there's wording like, our father below and the enemy. Those are backwards. The father below is Satan for them, and the enemy is who we would call our father. So it's, it's kind of just backwards and scary thinking about this. But that whole book is written from that perspective, the perspective of a demon writing to another demon, trying to get uh, their patient to come to hell. So it's a bit shocking, but it's super thought-provoking. And I'm going to read just one chapter this morning here in just a minute, but it, it makes us think about all of these things going on in our lives. And who's actually using them? What's actually maybe happening behind it? It might just be not nothing. It might be something. So, if you guys don't mind, what I'm going to start off with today is just five or six minutes reading the Screwtape Letters, chapter two, or letter two. It's a quick read. This whole book's pretty quick. I say that hesitantly because I'm not a good reader, but it's a, it's a quick book. And the first chapter is the introduction. And I kind of gave you some background, so we don't need that. And then we get right into the letters here in chapter 2, or letter 2. So, if you would like to listen, go ahead and listen to uh, chapter 2. This book is, um, is in public domain now, so you can find it online if you guys want to read this later on your own. All right, chapter 2 from the Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis. Remember, this is a demon writing this. One of our greatest allies at present, is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all of time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible, with many army banners. That, I confess, that is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters even uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them really understand, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts with a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad in very small print. When he gets to his pew and when he looks around him, he sees just that selection of these neighbors who he has 
here to avoid it. You want to lean pretty heavily into those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro because of expressions like the body of Christ and then the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that pew actually contains. You may know them as a great warrior on the enemy's side, but no matter. Your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that many of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak, double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has the idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that people in this church wear modern clothes is real, though an unconscious difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected all of these people to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all of eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the particular kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard, then, on the disappointment and anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchgoer. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down and starts to learn Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of living together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he is a curious fantasy, fantasy of making all these disgusting little humans. He likes to call them his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word that he uses. With his irreverent love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with these two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before him. He leaves it to them to do it on their own, and there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion, and therefore so much harder to tempt. I've been writing here too on the, assumption of the, on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Well, of course they do. If the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with the squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is even easier. All you have to do is keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of these people in the next pew prove that their religion is hypocrisy? You may ask whether it's possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to his human mind. It is, Wormwood. It is. 
handle him properly, and it simply won't even come to his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that it's showing great humility and condensation by going to church with all of these smug, commonplace neighbors all around. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. Kind of gives me like the heebie-jeebies even reading that. Because if to summarize all of this, the patient is a churchgoer. In the beginning of the chapter, I didn't read it, but uh, <clears throat> Uncle Screwtape is a little upset that they let him get that far. He's upset that he gets him into the church building at all. But he says, no, no fear, we've brought many people from this place down to hell. But he summarizes and he says, bring him into the church, but let him think about the wrong things. Let him come in and think about the songs. Think about how out of tune they sing. Think about the squeaky boots and the big hats and the weird clothes. Think about how we don't all look like Jesus' disciples in our togas and sandals. And then let them think, well, all these people are actually sinners. Think about how maybe they're gamblers or they're extortioners or they're corrupt people. All in all, if I had to summarize this chapter that C.S. Lewis wrote in one, one little phrase... It would be the idea of Satan's demons trying to draw the patient from faith, true Christianity. And how are they going to do it? They're going to use the church. Screwtape and Wormwood, the two demons in the story, one of the greatest tools in the very second chapter is the church to bring people to hell. This is a little convicting to me. Because when I read this, I think about myself. I don't know who the patient is. Maybe it's me. Maybe that's the point. But have you ever been caught up in all of these details at church? Who, you don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. Who here has ever been caught up by how we're singing? Yeah, me. Happened once or twice before. Whoever's been caught up by the uh, type of clothes that people are wearing? Uh, Me. I struggle with that on the opposite end. You might notice I'm fairly casual, so if somebody's too dressed up, I look at them. I mean, all of these random little things can become our focus. And then when we bring the hypocrisy side into it too, oh man, I don't want a faith where people are actually sinners and they are actually hypocrites and they still struggle with stuff. That's where our mind goes. Like, we, like uh, the book said, Me and myself, I miss the picture of the church and its glory from Jesus because of this building and that person and that detail. So it's super convicting to me because I can get caught up in all of these disappointments that I make for myself in the church. But sometimes we see people judging and try to identify the work of the Lord and serve the body of Christ, but we get caught up in judging the outside appearances and what they are as people. And I've seen that happen before. I've done it myself before. You guys probably have too. 
but we're all different people. If the church was made up of all of the same exact cookie-cutter perfect people, it wouldn't be the church at all. Jesus never even tried to meet with that type of church. He called them hypocrites, and he went and got the sinners. So see, we are all made of all of these different things, squeaky boots and big hats and all. And Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I invite you to open your Bibles. Let's read that one together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read about the middle, uh, verse 12 through 27. I invite you to grab your Bibles and read out of your version. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. Talking about all these different people and parts. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. All right. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into the body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong on the body, that would not make any less it make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which are more presentable parts, they do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are all the body of Christ and individually members of it. You ever thought about why we're called members of a church? Kind of a good example right here, right? But what's Paul saying in this uh, piece of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12? Well, he's given us a really good picture, right? He's saying the church is a body. And just like the human body needs all the different parts, it needs an eye, an ear, a nose, because they all serve a different purpose, the church also needs all of these different parts. It needs a Dave, it needs a Sandra. It needs a Larry. They're all different people. Sorry, they're just the ones up front. Not picking favorites. It needs all these different parts. But also, if any part of it were missing, you would notice. Because it's all important. They all work together. So when we talk about the church, 
and we read Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians 12, we can rejoice that we all have these things. That's how I'm going to put it. The things like the patient is struggling with in the book. We are all different, so some of us might really have the squeaky shoes. Some of us might really have the big hat. Hopefully, not many of us have a gambling addiction. Hopefully, not many of us are extortioners. But we're these different parts of the body all working together. And we can't just say, ah, not that one, because that would take away the entire function of the body. It all works together. We all have a role to play to serve God together. So in the book, Wormwood is tempting the patient, misdirecting him and making him look at all these little things on the specific parts of the, bi- of the body, the specific parts of the church. But actually, he's causing the patient to miss the point completely. All of these specific things aren't about how the church works at all. Not a whole bunch of eyes, but it's the whole body. And that's what he's expressing. He said, we're missing the church from creation, from Jesus, and we're thinking about the building and the people. Some good misdirection on the evil one side. So we're all together. We've been a part of the same church that Jesus started. It's not this individual little things. But when Satan starts to get in there, Oh, how quickly and easily can we start focusing on these things? I can, okay? Harold does. And remember what they're doing in the story? Same thing that's happening all around us. Trying to win that soul for an eternity in hell. Ah, We can't let Satan use the things that God created. So we're not all these individual pieces. It'll come apart. And if we focus on that, we've got to refocus on the body as a whole. And Paul kind of reiterates that we are all one in multiple, option, uh, multiple spots in his letters. So I'm going to jump into Ephesians here as well. So we, we go from one Paul letter to another Paul letter. But this idea of like you're not just individual pieces trying to be the church, you're one comes together again. Ephesians chapter 4. Just a couple of verses here so we get the, the idea. This is the one verses. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 7. Again, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that brings to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of of Christ's gift. So what's this verse saying? We were all given the same gift. That's the concluding line, right? We were all given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What? This oneness. Not all of these individual divisions that can be picked apart by Satan, all these individual characteristics that can drive us apart, but the fact that we are one body in one spirit with one hope and one call. What does that mean? That's kind of bible talk. It means, y'all, we're all here because of God, praise Him, we all got His Spirit, and we all have the same call, heaven, and to make other Christians till we get there. It all works together. That's the main part. Yes, you guys heard me say all y'all. You're welcome. 
But how easily can we, can we accidentally get caught up in that wrong message from Satan? In the screw tape letters here in chapter 2, there's one really interesting part that I caught, and it's rooted deeply in Scripture. Uncle Screwtape says to Wormwood, he says, make sure and get him now, because once they have, equivalently this, matured in the faith, and they're no longer just after the emotion of coming to church, oh, they're so much harder to get. They're so much harder to get. Is that not just a huge scriptural point that we've seen? Hebrews chapter 5, we know that we're at different walks in our faith. We know that when you become a Christian, you're not just uh, all knowledge of the whole Bible. It doesn't just happen like that. Ephesians 5, uh, verses, or Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14 gives us kind of this good imagery on it, right? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Back to the basics. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is exactly what uh, Wormwood and Screwtape were talking about. We got to get him while he's still fresh on the milk. Because once he starts training and encouraging and learning, he distinguishes good from evil. And they're the evil side. They won't be able to take him anymore. The, the wording that was used in the book is when he goes from learning Bible stories to actually learning the Greek. I kind of like that. Studying the Word of God instead of just hearing, right? That's when he won't be able to be taken anymore. So they're coming after the patient when he's young in his faith. When he's just... He's only been at church a few times from what we read, right? And, he, and as I said earlier, the beginning of the chapter, Wormwood was actually in trouble for even letting him go to church at all. But they still have the opportunity. He's still young enough and he's dumb enough. That's what they said. He's a fool. That they can steal away and make him a disciple of the father below, of the devil. So Screwtape is advising Wormwood this whole time. You need to get him right here. You need to get him while he's not on solid food yet. All right, so we've got the screw tape letters. We've got some scriptures that mean that work together. What does this all mean for us today? What does it mean for us Christians sitting here in the room right now? Does it impact our lives? I'm going to say absolutely. When I read the, this piece of this book and I read these scriptures, uh, that impacts me and it shows me how I ought to be living, right? One body, not focused on these other things. But how does it impact our lives? Well, I've got a couple of pieces. First, I don't think I'm the only one that's been manipulated by Satan this, or Satan's team in this way. Anybody else ever had to think about this and not be focused on these small things? Think about the body as a whole. Unfortunately, I spend too much time looking at the imperfections of the imperfect people in this imperfect church, and I focus on the physical things, and I get discouraged and downtrodden and fed up with the church. It's happened to me physically before. Ticked off at the church because of all the details in the people, not the grand plan. Just like the patient in the book. And if I'm being honest, sometimes maybe the dark side's kind of started pulling me on their mission. 
started pulling me to the evil one. But I got to refocus and remember that my walk is about the church, the one body with one goal and one faith. It's about me being a disciple until Christ returns. Not about the squeaky shoes. Not about the imperfections and the sins of you guys. Or anybody. So how else does it apply? Well, we need to remember that we're all a part of this body. So from the opposite side of the patient, we need to remember, hey, we work together. Some of us might be the feet. Some of us might be the hands. We might be the eyes, the ears, the nose. When we read from Paul in in 1 Corinthians 12, he said those ones that seem insignificant are actually the most important. (laughs) And those ones that are uh, a little boastful and proud they're not the ones that need modesty. They're the ones that need modesty. We can give a little pride to the ones that are being modest. And so we kind of refocus this idea of, yeah, we all work together. Because when we are one body with one faith working together and a patient walks in, they might see the things that are imperfect about us. But the community of the body coming together might just help them see that we're more than those things. We will never completely eliminate those things. We will always have a songbook with two smaller words and some songs that are out of tune and some squeaky shoes and some big hats. That's just who we are. We're full of humans. But we need to be the body together and work together. Instead of being dysfunctional, we can be the body parts as the body. And you know, we, we all interact with people in stages of faith all over the board. To say that everyone in this room is eating a great big old steak in the form of from milk to steak would be not true. There's many of us who are all along that walk. So as the body, we need to make sure we're nurturing the babies. We need to make sure we're giving them healthy milk because if we're not, Satan's going to come in there and just get them with his new thing. We need to walk alongside them and help them grow and mature until they can be strong disciples as well. So don't let the dark side take the church. One of the first chapters of this book, and they're trying to manipulate the church to be used for Satan. And yeah, I've seen it happen. Yeah, I've I've felt it happening to me because I've been caught up in all of these things. But don't let Satan take the church. Don't let him be the key player in the body. But let the body be God's. Let the body have God as his key player. Thank you guys. Hopefully we can do some more of these screw tape sermons. I hope they're not too weird. But I want to talk about that. And I think, I think it's so, so powerful to see how Satan can use the church. It's scary. Thank you.